Question 97 of Summa Theologica, Pros Prima, Amen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Justin. Summa Theologica, Pros Prima, Amen. By St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 97. Of the preservation of the individual in the primitive state. In four articles. We next consider what belongs to the bodily state of the first man. First, as regards the preservation of the individual. Secondly, as regards the preservation of the species. Under the first head, there are four points of inquiry. 1. Whether man in the state of innocence was immortal. 2. Whether he was impassable. 3. Whether he stood in need of food. 4. Whether he would have obtained immortality by the tree of life. The first article whether in the state of innocence man would have been mortal. Objection 1. It would seem that in the state of innocence man was not immortal, for the term mortal belongs to the definition of man, but if you take away the definition, you take away the thing defined. Therefore, as long as man was man, he could not be immortal. Objection 2. Further, corruptible and incorruptible are generically distinct, as the philosopher says, Metaphysics 10, Didascale 9, 10. But there can be no passing from the one genus to another. Therefore, if the first man was incorruptible, man could not be corruptible in the present state. Objection 3. Further, if man were immortal in the state of innocence, this would have been due either to nature or to grace. Not a nature, for since nature does not change within the same species, he would also have been mortal now. Likewise, neither would this be owing to grace. For the first man recovered grace by repentance, according to Wisdom 10.2. He brought him out of his sins. Hence, he would have regained his immortality, which is clearly not the case. Therefore, man was not immortal in the state of innocence. Objection 4. Further, immortality is promised to man as a reward. According to Apocalypse 21.4, death shall be no more. But man was not created in the state of reward, but that he might deserve the reward. Therefore, man was not immortal in the state of innocence. On the contrary, it is written, Romans 5.12, By sin death came into the world. Therefore, man was mortal before sin. I answer that a thing may be incorruptible in three ways. First, on the part of matter, that is to say, either because it possesses no matter, like an angel, or because it possesses matter that is in potentiality to one form only, like the heavenly bodies. Such things as these are incorruptible by their very nature. Secondly, a thing is incorruptible in its form, inasmuch as being by nature corruptible, yet it has an inherent disposition which preserves it wholly from corruption, and this is called incorruptibility of glory. Because, as Augustine says, God made man so of such a powerful nature, that from its fullness of beatitude, there redounds to the body a fullness of health with the vigor of incorruption. Thirdly, a thing may be incorruptible on the part of its sufficient cause, in this sense, man was incorruptible and immortal in the state of innocence. For as Augustine says, God made man immortal as long as he did not sin, so that he might achieve for himself life or death. For man's body was indissoluble not by reason of any intrinsic figure of immortality, but by reason of a supernatural force given by God to the soul, whereby it was enabled to preserve the body from all corruption so long as it remained self-subject to God. This entirely agrees with reason, for since the rational soul surpasses the capacity of corporeal matter, as above explained, question 76, article 1, it was most properly endowed at the beginning with the power of preserving the body in a manner surpassing the capacity of corporeal matter. Reply objection 1 and 2. These objections are founded on natural incorruptibility and immortality. 
Reply Objection Three. This power of preserving the body was not natural to the soul, but was the gift of grace. And though man recovered grace as regards remission of guilt and the merit of glory, yet he did not recover immortality, the loss of which was an effect of sin. For this was reserved for Christ to accomplish, by whom the defect of nature was to be restored into something better, as we shall explain further on. Reply Objection Four. The promised reward of the immortality of glory differs from the immortality which was bestowed on man in the state of innocence. Second article, whether in the state of innocence man would have been passable. Objection one: It would seem that in the state of innocence man was passable, for sensation is a kind of passion. But in the state of innocence man would have been sensitive, therefore he would have been passable. Objection two. Further, sleep is a kind of passion. Now, man slept in the state of innocence, according to Genesis 2:21. God cast a deep sleep upon Adam, therefore he would have been passable. Objection three. Further, the same passage goes on to say that he took a rib out of Adam, therefore he was passable even to the degree of the cutting out of part of his body. Objection four. Further, man's body was soft, but a soft body is naturally passable as regards a hard body. Therefore, if a hard body had come in contact with the soft body of the first man, the latter would have suffered from the impact. Therefore, the first man was passable. On the contrary, had man been passable, he would have been also corruptible, because, as the philosopher says, excessive suffering wastes the very substance. I answer that passion may be taken in two senses: first, in its proper sense, and thus a thing is said to suffer when changed from its natural disposition. For passion is the effect of action, and in nature contraries are mutually active or passive, according as one thing changes another from its natural disposition. Secondly, passion can be taken in a general sense for any kind of change, even if belonging to the perfecting process of nature. Thus, understanding and sensation are said to be passions. In the second sense, man was passable in the state of innocence and was passive both in soul and body. In the first sense, man was impassible both in soul and body, as he was likewise immortal. For he could curb his passion, as he could avoid death, so long as he refrained from sin. Thus, it is clear how to reply to the first two objections, since sensation and sleep do not remove from man his natural disposition, but are ordered to his natural welfare. Reply objection three, as already explained, question ninety two, article three, at two. The rib was in Adam as the principle of the human race, as the semen in man, who is a principle through generation. Hence. As man does not suffer any natural deterioration by seminal issue, so neither did he through the separation of the rib. Reply objection four: Man's body in the state of innocence could be preserved from suffering injury from a hard body, partly by the use of his reason, whereby he could avoid what was harmful, and partly also by divine providence, so preserving him that nothing of a harmful nature could come upon him unawares. Third article: Whether in the state of innocence man had need of food. Objection one: It would seem that in the state of innocence, man did not require food, for food is necessary for man to restore what he has lost. But Adam's body suffered no loss, as being incorruptible; therefore, he had no need of food. Objection two: Further, food is needed for nourishment, but nourishment involves passibility. Since then, man's body was impassible; it does not appear how food could be needful to him. Objection three: Further. We need food for the preservation of life, but Adam could preserve his life otherwise. For had he not sinned, he would not have died. Therefore, he did not require food. Objection four. Further, the consumption of food involves voiding of the surplus, which seems unsuitable to the state of innocence. Therefore, it seems that man did not take food in the primitive state. On the contrary, 
It is written, Genesis two sixteen, of every tree in paradise ye shall eat. I answer that in the state of innocence, man had an animal life requiring food, but after the resurrection, he would have a spiritual life needing no food. In order to make this clear, we must observe that the rational soul is both soul and spirit. It is called so by reason of what it possesses in common with other souls, that is, as giving life to the body. Whence it is written, Genesis two seven, man was made into a living soul, that is, a soul giving life to the body. The soul is called a spirit according to what properly belongs to the self and not other souls, as possessing an intellectual and material power. Thus, in the primitive state, the rational soul communicated to the body what belonged to itself as a soul, and so the body was called animal through having its life from the soul. Now, the first principle of life in these inferior creatures, as the philosopher says, is the vegetative soul, the operation of which are the use of food, generation, and growth. Wherefore, such operations befitted man in the state of innocence. But in the final state, after the resurrection, the soul will, to a certain extent, communicate to the body what properly belongs to the self as a spirit, immortality to everyone, impassibility, glory, and power to the good. Those bodies will be called spiritual. So, after the resurrection, man will not require food, whereas he required it in the state of innocence. Reply, objection one, as Augustine says. How could man have an immortal body which was sustained by food, since an immortal being needs neither food nor drink? For we have explained Article One that immortality of the primitive state was based on a supernatural force in the soul and not on an intrinsic disposition of the body, so that by the action of heat the body might lose part of its humid qualities, and to prevent the entire consumption of the humor, man was obliged to take food. Reply Objection Two. A certain passion and adoration attends nutriment on part of the food changed into the substance of the thing nourished. So we cannot thence conclude that man's body was passable, but that a food taken was passable, although this kind of passion conduced to the perfection of the nature. Reply objection three: If man had not taken food, he would have sinned, as he also sinned by taking the forbidden fruit, for he was told at the same time to abstain from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and to eat of every other tree of paradise. Reply objection four: Some say that in the state of innocence, man would not have taken more than necessary food, so that there would have been nothing superfluous, which, however, is unreasonable to suppose, as implying that there would have been no fecal matter. Wherefore, there was need for voiding the surplus, yet so disposed by God as to be decorous and suitable to the state. Fourth article: Whether in the state of innocence, man would have acquired immortality by the tree of life. Objection one. It would seem that the tree of life could not be the cause of immortality, for nothing can act beyond its own species, as an effect does not exceed its cause. But the tree of life was corruptible; otherwise, it could not be taken as food, since food is changed into the substance of the thing nourished. Therefore, the tree of life could not give incorruptibility or immortality. Objection two. Further, effects caused by the forces of plants and other natural agencies are natural. If therefore the tree of life caused immortality, this would have been natural immortality. Objection three. Further, this would seem to be reduced to the ancient fable that the gods, by eating a certain food, became immortal, which the philosopher ridicules. On the contrary, it is written, Genesis three twenty-two, lest perhaps he put forth his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live for ever. Further, Augustine says. A taste of the tree of life warded off corruption of the body, and even after sin, man would have remained immortal had he been allowed to eat of the tree of life. I answer that the tree of life, in a certain degree, was the cause of immortality, but not absolutely.
To understand this, we must observe that in the primitive state, men possessed for the preservation of life two remedies against two defects. One of these defects was the loss of humidity by the action of natural heat, which acts as the soul's instrument. As a remedy against such loss, man was provided with food taken from the other trees of paradise. As now we are provided with food, which we take for the same purpose. The second defect, as the philosopher says, arises from the fact that the humor which is caused from the extraneous causes, being added to the humor already existent, lessens the specific active power. As water added to wine takes at first the taste of wine, then as more water is added, the strength of the wine is diminished till the wine becomes watery. In like manner. We may observe that at first the active force of the species is so strong that it is able to transform so much of the food as is required to replace the lost tissue, as well as what suffices for growth. Later on, however, the assimilated food does not suffice for growth, but only replaces what is lost. Last of all, in old age, it does not suffice even for this purpose, whereupon the body declines and finally dies from natural causes. Against this defect, man was provided with a remedy in the tree of life. For its effect was to strengthen the force of the species against the weakness resulting from the admixture of extraneous nutriment. Wherefore Augustine says, "Man had food to appease his hunger, drink to slake his thirst, and the tree of life to banish the breaking up of old age." And the tree of life, like the drug, warded off all bodily corruption. Yet it did not absolutely cause immortality, for neither was the soul's intrinsic power of preserving the body due to the tree of life, nor was it of such efficiency as to give the body a disposition to immortality, whereby it might become indissoluble, which is clear from the fact that every bodily power is finite. So the power of the tree of life could not go so far as to give the body the prerogative of living from an infinite time, but only for a definite time, for it is manifest that the greater it forces, the more durable is its effect. Therefore, since the power of the tree of life was finite, man's life was to be preserved for a definite time by partaking of it once. And when the time had elapsed, man was to be either transferred to a spiritual life or had need to eat once more of the tree of life. From this, the replies to the objections clearly appear. For the first proves that the tree of life did not absolutely cause immortality, while the others show that it caused incorruption by warding off corruption, according to the explanation above given. End of question ninety-seven. Recording by Justin. Question ninety-eight. The Summa Theologica Postprima on Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Postprima on Man by Saint Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question ninety-eight. The preservation of the species in two articles. We next consider what belongs to the preservation of the species, and first of generation, secondly, the state of the offspring. Under the first head, there are two points of inquiry: whether in the state of innocence there would have been generation; whether generation would have been through coition. First article: whether in the state of innocence generation existed. Objection one. It would seem there would have been no generation in the state of innocence, for, as stated in Physics, Volume Five, corruption is contrary to generation, but contraries affect the same subject. Also, there would have been no corruption in the state of innocence. Therefore, neither would there have been generation. Objection to, further, the object of generation is the preservation in the species that which is corruptible in the individual. Wherefore, there is no generation in those individual things which last forever, 
But in the state of innocence, men would have lived forever. Therefore, in the state of innocence, there would have been no generation. Objection three. Further, by generation man is multiplied, but the multiplication of masters requires the division of property to avoid confusion of mastership. Therefore, since man was made master of the animals, it would have been necessary to make a division of rights when the human race increased by generation. This is against the natural law, according to which all things are in common, as Isidore says. Etymology, Volume Four. Therefore, there would have been no generation in the state of innocence. On the contrary, it is written, Genesis one twenty-eight: "Increase and multiply and fill the earth." But this increase could not come about save by generation, since the original number of mankind was two only. Therefore, there would have been generation in the state of innocence. I answer that in the state of innocence, there would have been generation of offspring for the multiplication of the human race. Otherwise, man's sin would have been very necessary for such a great lesson to be its result. We must, therefore, observe that man, by his nature, is established as it were midway between corruptible and incorruptible creatures. He so be naturally incorruptible, while his body is naturally corruptible. We must also observe that nature's purpose appears to be different as regards corruptible and incorruptible things, for that seems to be the direct purpose of nature. Which is invariable and perpetual, while what is only for a time is seemingly not the chief purpose of nature, but as it were subordinate to something else. Otherwise, when it ceases to exist, nature's purpose would become void. Therefore, since in things corruptible none is everlasting and permanent except the species, it follows that the chief purpose of nature is the good of the species, for the preservation of which natural generation is ordained. On the other hand, incorruptible substances survive not only in the species but also in the individual. Wherefore, even the individuals are included in the chief purpose of nature. Hence, it belongs to men to beget offspring on the part of the naturally corruptible body, but on the part of the soul which is incorruptible, it is fitting that multitude of individuals should be the direct purpose of nature, or rather, of the author of nature, who alone is the creator of the human soul. Wherefore, to provide for the multiplication of the human race, he established the begetting of offspring even in the state of innocence. Reply objection one: In the state of innocence, the human body was in itself corruptible, but it could be preserved from corruption by the soul. Therefore, since generation belongs to things corruptible, man was not to be deprived thereof. Reply objection two. Although generation in the state of innocence might not have been required for the preservation of the species, yet it would have been required for the multiplication of the individual. Reply objection three: In our present state, a division of possessions is necessary on account of the multiplicity of masters, inasmuch as community of possession is a source of strife, as the philosopher says, politics, two five. In the state of innocence, however. The will of men would have been so ordered that, without any danger of strife, they would have used in common, according to each one's need, those things of which they were masters. A state of things to be observed even now among many good men. Second article of question ninety-eight: Whether in the state of innocence there would have been generation by coition? Objection one: It would seem that generation by coition would not have existed in the state of innocence, for as Damascene says. The first man in the terrestrial paradise was like an angel, but in the future state of the resurrection, when men will be like the angels, they shall neither marry nor be married, 
as is written, Matthew twenty-two thirty. Therefore, neither in paradise would there have been generation by coition. Objection to further, our first parents were created at the age of perfect development. Therefore, if generation by coition had existed before sin, they would have had intercourse while still in paradise, which was not the case according to Scripture, Genesis four one. Objection three. Further, in carnal intercourse, more than at any other time, man becomes like the beasts on account of the vehement delight which he takes therein, whence contingency is praiseworthy, whereby man refrains from such pleasures. But man is compared to beasts by reason of sin, according to Psalms forty-eight thirteen. Man, when he was in honor, did not understand; he is compared to senseless beasts, and is become like to them. Therefore, before sin, there would have been no such intercourse of man and woman. Objection four. Further, in the state of innocence, there would have been no corruption. But virginal integrity is corrupted by intercourse. Therefore, there would have been no such thing in the state of innocence. On the contrary, God made man and woman before sin. Genesis one two. But nothing is void in God's works. Therefore, even if man had not sinned, there would have been such intercourse to which the distinction of sex is ordained. Moreover, we are told that woman was made to be help to man. Genesis two eighteen twenty. But she is not fitted to help man except in generation, because another man would have proved a more effective help in anything else. Therefore, there would have been such generation also in the state of innocence. I answer that some of the earlier doctors, considering the nature of concupiscence as regards generation in our present state, concluded that in the state of innocence, generation would not have been affected in the same way. Thus, Gregory of Nyssa says that in paradise, the human race would have been multiplied by some other means, as the angels were multiplied without coition by the operation of the divine power. He adds that God made man male and female before sin, because he foreknew the mode of generation which would take place after sin, which he foresaw. But this is unreasonable, for what is natural to man was neither acquired nor forfeited by sin. Now it is clear that generation by coition is natural to man by reason of his animal life, which he possessed even before sin, as above explained. Question ninety-seven, Article three. Just as it is natural to other perfect animals, as the corporeal members make it clear. So we cannot allow that these members would not have had a natural use as other members had before sin. Thus, as regards generation by coition, there are in the present state of life two things to be considered. One, which comes from nature, is the union of man and woman. For in every act of generation, there is an active and and passive principle. Wherefore, since wherever there is distinction of sex, the active principle is male and the passive is female, the order of nature demands that for the purpose of generation there should be concurrence of male and female. The second thing to be observed is a certain deformity of excessive concupiscence, which in the state of innocence would not have existed, when the lower powers were entirely subject to reason. Wherefore, Augustine says, we must be far from supposing that offspring could not be begotten without concupiscence. Our bodily members would have been equally moved by the will, without ardent or wanton incentive, with calmness of soul and body. Reply objection one: In paradise, man would have been like an angel in his spirituality of mind, yet with an animal life in his body. After the resurrection, man would be like an angel, spiritualized in soul and body. Wherefore, there is no parallel. Reply objection two: As Augustine says. Our first parents did not come together in paradise because, on account of sin, they were ejected from paradise shortly after the creation of the woman, or because 
Having received the general divine command relative to generation, they waited the special command relative to time. Reply. Objection three. Beasts are without reason. In this way, man becomes, as it were, like them in coition, because he cannot moderate concupiscence. In the state of innocence, nothing of this kind would have happened that was not regulated by reason. Not because the light of sense was less, as some say; rather, indeed, would the sensible delight have been the greater in proportion to the greater purity of nature and the greater sensibility of the body. But because the force of concupiscence would not have so inordinately thrown itself into such pleasure, being curbed by reason, whose pace it is not less essential pleasure, but to prevent the force of concupiscence from cleaving to it immoderately. By immoderately, I mean going beyond the bounds of reason. As a sober person does not take less pleasure in food, taking in moderation, than the glutton, but his concupiscence lingers less in such pleasures. This is what Augustine means by the words quoted, which do not exclude intensity of pleasure from the state of innocence, but ardor of desire and restlessness of mind. Therefore, continence would not have been praiseworthy in the state of innocence, whereas it is praiseworthy in our present state. Not because it removes fecundity, but because it excludes inordinate desire. In that state, fecundity would have been without lust. Reply objection four. As Augustine says, in that state, intercourse would have been without prejudice to virginal integrity. This would have remained intact as it does in the menses. And just as in giving birth, the mother was then relieved not by groans of pain, but by the instigation of maturity. So in conceiving, the union was one. Not of lust for desire, but of deliberate action. End of question ninety-eight. Recording by Justin. Question ninety-nine. Summa theologica. Pass prima. Amen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Pas Prima Amen by Saint Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question ninety nine of the condition of the offspring as to the body. We must now consider the condition of the offspring first, as regards the body; secondly, as regards virtue; thirdly, in knowledge. Under the first head, there are two points of inquiry. First. Whether in the state of innocence children would have had full powers of the body immediately after birth, second, whether all infants would have been of the male sex. First article: Whether in the state of innocence children would have had perfect strength of body as to the use of its members immediately after birth. Objection one: It would seem that in the state of innocence children would have had perfect strength of the body as to the use of its members. Immediately after birth, for Augustine says, "This weakness of the body befits their weakness of mind." But in the state of innocence, there would have been no weakness of mind; therefore, neither would there have been weakness of body in infants. Objection to. Further, some animals at birth have sufficient strength to use their members, but man is nobler than other animals. Therefore, much more is it natural to man to have strength to use his members at birth, and thus it appears to be in punishment of sin that he has not that strength. Objection three. Further, inability to secure a proper pleasure causes affliction. But if children had not full strength in the use of their limbs, they would often have been unable to procure something pleasurable offered to them, and so they would have been afflicted. 
which was not possible before sin. Therefore, in the state of innocence, children would not have been deprived of the use of their limbs. Objection four. Further, the weakness of old age seems to correspond to that of infancy. But in the state of innocence, there would have been no weakness of old age. Therefore, neither would there have been such weakness in infancy. On the contrary, everything generated is first imperfect. But in the state of innocence, children would have been begotten by generation. Therefore, from the first, they would have been imperfect in bodily size and power. I answer that by faith alone do we hold truths which are above nature, and what we believe rests on authority. Wherefore, in making any assertion, we must be guided by the nature of things, excepting those things which are above nature and are made known to us by divine authority. Now it is clear. That it is as natural as it is befitting to the principles of human nature that children should not have sufficient strength for the use of their limbs immediately after birth, because in proportion to other animals, man has naturally a larger brain. Wherefore, it is natural, on account of the considerable humidity of the brain in children, that the nerves which are instruments of movement should not be apt for moving the limbs. On the other hand, no Catholic doubts it possible for a child to have. By divine power, the use of its limbs immediately after birth. Now we have it on the authority of Scripture that God made men right, Ecclesiastes seven thirty, which rightness, as Augustine says, consists in the perfect subjection of the body to the soul. As therefore, in the primitive state, it was impossible to find in the human limbs anything repugnant to man's bewildered will, so was it impossible for those limbs to fail in executing the will's commands. Now the human will is well ordered when it tends to acts which are befitting to man, but the same acts are not befitting to man at every season of life. We must therefore conclude that children would not have had sufficient strength for the use of their limbs for the purpose of performing every kind of act, but only for the acts befitting the state of infancy, such as suckling and the like. Reply objection one. Augustine is speaking of the weakness which we observe in children, even as regards those acts which befit a state of infancy. As is clear from his preceding remark that even when close to the breast and longing for it, they are more apt to cry than to suckle. Reply objection two: The fact that some animals have the use of their limbs immediately after birth is due not to their superiority, since more perfect animals are not so endowed, but to the dryness of the brain and to the operations proper to such animals being imperfect, so that a small amount of strength suffices them. Reply objection three is clear from what we have said above. We may add that they would have desired nothing except with an ordinate will, and only what was befitting to their state of life. Reply objection four. In the state of innocence, men would have been born yet not subject to corruption. Therefore, in that state, there could have been certain infantile defects which result from birth, but not senile defects leading to corruption. Second article. Whether in the primitive state women would have been born? Objection one. It would seem that in the primitive state women would not have been born, for the philosopher says that woman is a misbegotten male, as though she were a product outside purpose of nature. But in that state nothing would have been unnatural in human generation. Therefore, in that state women would not have been born. Objection two. Further. Every agent produces its like, unless prevented by insufficient power or ineptness of matter. Thus, a small fire cannot burn green wood, but in generation the active forces in the male. 
since, therefore, in the state of innocence man's active force was not subject to the fact, nor was there inept matter on the part of the woman, it seems that males would always have been born. Objection 3. Further, in the state of innocence, generation is ordered to the multiplication of human race, but the race would have been sufficiently multiplied by the first man and woman, from the fact that they would have lived forever. Therefore, in the state of innocence, there was no need for women to be born. On the contrary, nature's process in generation would have been in harmony with the manner in which it was established by God, but God established male and female in human nature, as it is written, Genesis 1-2. Therefore, also in the state of innocence, male and female would have been born. I answer that, nothing belonging to the completeness of human nature would have been lacking in the state of innocence, and, as different grades belong to the perfection of the universe, so also diversity of sex belongs to the perfection of the human nature. Therefore, in the state of innocence, both sexes would have been begotten. Reply Objection 1 Woman is said to be a misbegotten male, as being a product outside the purpose of nature considered in the individual case, but not against the purpose of a universal nature. As above explained, Question 92, Article 1 and 2 Reply Objection 2 the generation of woman is not occasioned either by a defect of the active force or by inept matter, as the objection proposes, but sometimes by an extrinsic accidental cause. Thus the philosopher says, the northern wind favors the generation of males, and the southern wind that of females. Sometimes also by some impression in the soul of the parents, which may easily have some effect on the body of the child. Especially was this the case in the state of innocence, when the body was more subject to the soul so that by the mere will of the parent the sex of the offspring might be diversified. Reply Objection 3. The offspring would have been begotten to an animal life as to the use of food and generation. Hence, it was fitting that all should generate, and not only the first parents. From this, it seems to follow that males and females would have been in equal number. End of Question 99 of Summa Theologica Pas Prima Recording by Justin Question 100 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Eaves. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 100 of the condition of the offspring as regards righteousness, in two articles. We now have to consider the condition of the offspring as to righteousness. Under this head there are two points of inquiry. 1. Whether men would have been born in a state of righteousness. 2. Whether they would have been born confirmed in righteousness. First Article 1. Question 100. Article 1. Whether men would have been born in a state of righteousness. Objection 1. It would seem that in the state of innocence men would have not been born in a state of righteousness. For, Hugh of St. Victor says in On the Sacraments 1, Before sin the first man would have begotten children sinless, but not heirs to their father's righteousness. Objection 2. Further, righteousness is effected by grace, as the Apostle says, Romans 5, 16, 21. Now grace is not transfused from one to another, 
for thus it would be natural, but is infused by God alone. Therefore children would not have been born in righteousness. Objection 3. Further, righteousness is in the soul, but the soul is not transmitted from the parent. Therefore neither would righteousness have been transmitted from the parents to the children. On the contrary, Anselm says in On the Virginal Conception, 10, As long as man did not sin, he would have begotten children endowed with righteousness together with the rational soul. I answer that, man naturally begets a specific likeness to himself, hence whatever accidental qualities result from the nature of the species must be alike in parent and child, unless nature fails in its operation, which would not have occurred in the state of innocence. But individual accidents do not necessarily exist alike in parent and child. Now original righteousness, in which the first man was created, was an accident pertaining to the nature of the species, not as caused by the principles of the species, but as a gift conferred by God on the entire human nature. This is clear from the fact that the opposites are of the same genus, and original sin, which is opposed to original righteousness, is called the sin of nature, wherefore it is transmitted from the parent to the offspring, and for this reason also, the children would have been assimilated to their parents as regards original righteousness. Reply to Objection 1. These words of Hugh are to be understood as referring not to the habit of righteousness, but to the execution of the act thereof. Reply to Objection 2. Some say that children would have been born not with the righteousness of grace, which is the principle of merit, but with original righteousness. But since the root of original righteousness, which conferred righteousness on the first man when he was made, consists in the supernatural subjection of the reason to God, which subjection results from the sanctifying grace, as above explained, question 95, article 1, we must conclude that if children were born in original righteousness, they would also have been born in grace. Thus we have said above that the first man was created in grace. Question 95, Article 1. This grace, however, would not have been natural, for it would not have been transferred by virtue of the semen, but would have been conferred on man immediately on his receiving a rational soul. In the same way, the rational soul which is not transmitted by the parent is infused by God as soon as the human body is apt to receive it. From this the reply to the third objection is clear. Second Article 1. Question 100. Article 2. Whether in the state of innocence children would have been born confirmed in righteousness? Objection 1. It would seem that in the state of innocence children would have been born confirmed in righteousness. For Gregory says in Moral Poems 4, on the words of Job 3.13, For now I should have been asleep, etc. If no sinful corruption had infected our first parent, he would not have begotten children of hell. No children would have been born of him, but such as were destined to be saved by the Redeemer. Therefore all would have been born confirmed in righteousness. Objection 2. Further, Anselm says in Why God Became Man, 1.18, If our first parents had lived so as not to yield to temptation, they would have been confirmed in grace, so that with their offspring they would have been unable to sin any more. Therefore the children would have been born confirmed in righteousness. Objection 3. Further, good is stronger than evil. 
But by the sin of the first man there resulted in those born of him the necessity of sin. Therefore, if the first man had persevered in righteousness, his descendants would have derived from him the necessity of preserving righteousness. Objection 4. Further, the angels who remained faithful to God while the others sinned were at once confirmed in grace so as to be unable henceforth to sin. In like manner, therefore, man would have been confirmed in grace if he had persevered, but he would have begotten children like himself. Therefore, they also would have been born confirmed in righteousness. On the contrary, Augustine says in The City of God, 1, 14, 10, Happy would have been the whole human race if neither they, that is our first parents, had committed any evil to be transmitted to their descendants, nor any of their race had committed any sin for which they would have been condemned. From which words we gather that even if our first parents had not sinned, any of their descendants might have done evil, and therefore they would not have been born confirmed in righteousness. I answer that it does not seem possible that in the state of innocence children would have been born confirmed in righteousness, for it is clear that at their birth they would not have had greater perfection than their parents at the time of begetting. Now the parents, as long as they begot children, would not have been confirmed in righteousness, for the rational creature is confirmed in righteousness through the beatitude given by the clear vision of God. And once it has seen God, it cannot but cleave to him who is the essence of goodness, wherefrom no one can turn away, since nothing is desired or loved but under the aspect of good. I say this according to the general law, for it may be otherwise in the case of special privilege, such as we believe was granted to the Virgin Mother of God. And as soon as Adam had attained to that happy state of seeing God in his essence, he would have become spiritual in soul and body, but his animal life would have ceased, wherein alone there is generation. Hence it is clear that children would not have been born confirmed in righteousness. Reply to Objection 1. If Adam had not sinned, he would not have begotten children of hell, in the sense that they would not contract from him his sin, which is the cause of hell. Yet by sinning of their own free will, they could have become children of hell. If, however, they did not become children of hell by falling into sin, this would not have been owing to their being confirmed in righteousness, but to divine providence preserving them free from sin. Reply to Objection 2. Anselm does not say this by way of assertion, but only as an opinion, which is clear from his mode of expression as follows. It seems that if they had lived, etc. Reply to Objection 3. This argument is not conclusive, though Anselm seems to have been influenced by it, as appears from his words above quoted. For the necessity of sin incurred by the descendants would not have been such that they could not return to righteousness, which is the case only with the damned. Wherefore neither would the parents have transmitted to their descendants the necessity of not sinning, which is only in the blessed. Reply to Objection 4. There is no comparison between man and the angels, for man's free will is changeable, both before and after choice, whereas the angels is not changeable, as we have said above in the treating of the angels. Question 64, Article 2. End of Question 100. Recording by Kevin Eaves.
Question 101 of Summa Theologica Pars Prima on Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by April Gonzalez. Summa Theologica Pars Prima on Man by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of English Dominican Province. Question 101. Of the condition of the offspring as regards knowledge, in two articles. We next consider the condition of the offspring as to knowledge. Under this head there are two points of inquiry. 1. Whether in the state of innocence children would have been born to perfect knowledge. 2. Whether they would have perfect use of reason at the moment of birth. First article. Question 101. Article 1. Whether in the state of innocence children would have been born with perfect knowledge? Objection 1. It would seem that in the state of innocence children would have been born with perfect knowledge, for Adam would have been begotten children like himself, but Adam was gifted with perfect knowledge. Question 94. Article 3. Therefore children would have been born with him with perfect knowledge. Objection 2. Further ignorance is a result of sin, as Bede says, but ignorance is a privation of knowledge. Therefore, before sin, children would have had perfect knowledge as soon as they were born. Objection 3. Further, children would have been gifted with the righteousness from birth. But knowledge is required for righteousness, since it directs our actions. Therefore, they would have also been gifted with knowledge. On the contrary, the human soul is naturally like a blank tablet, on which nothing is written, as the philosopher says, De anima free, number four. But the nature of the soul is the same now as it would have been in the state of innocence, therefore the souls of children would have been without knowledge at birth. I answer that. Above stated, question 99, article 1, as regards belief in matters which are above nature, we rely on authority alone, and so, when authority is wanting, we must be guided by the ordinary course of nature. Now it is natural for man to acquire knowledge through the senses, as above explained. Question 55, Article 2. Question 84, Article 6. And for this reason is the soul united to the body, that it needs it for its proper operation. And this would not be so if the soul were endowed at birth with knowledge, not acquired through the sensitive powers. We must conclude, then, that in the state of innocence, children would have been born with perfect knowledge, but in course of time they would have acquired knowledge without difficulty by discovery or learning. Reply Objection 1. The perfection of knowledge was an individual accident of our first parent. So far as he was established as the father and instructor of the whole human race, therefore he begot children like himself, not in that respect, but only in those accidents which were natural, or conferred gratuitously, on the whole nature. Reply objection to. Ignorance is privation of knowledge due at some particular time, and this would have been in the children from their birth. For they would have possessed the knowledge due to them at that time. Hence no ignorance would have been in them, but only nescience in regard to certain matters. Such nescience was even in the holy angels, according to Genesius. On the Heavenly Hierarchy, 7. Reply Objection 3. 
children would have had sufficient knowledge to direct them to deeds of righteousness, in which men are guided by universal principles of right, and this knowledge of theirs would have been much more complete than what we have now by nature, as likewise the knowledge of other universal principles. Second article. I. Question 101. Article 2. Whether children would have had perfect use of reason at birth. Objection 1. It would seem that children would have had perfect use of reason at birth, for that children have not perfect use of reason in our present state, is due to the soul being weighed down by the body, which was not the case in paradise, because, as it is written, the corruptible body is allowed upon the soul. Wisdom, chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, before sin and corruption which resulted therefrom, children would have had the perfect use of reason at birth. Objection to. Further, some animals at birth have the use of the natural powers, as the lamb at once flees from the wolf. Much more. Therefore, would men in the state of innocence have had perfect use of reason at birth? On the contrary, in all things produced by generation, nature proceeds from the imperfect to the perfect. Therefore, children would not have had the perfect use of reason from the very outset. I answer that. As above stated, question 84, article 7, that the use of reason depends in a certain manner on the use of sensitive powers. Wherefore, while these senses are tired and the interior sensitive powers hampered, man has not the perfect use of reason, as we see in those who are asleep or delirious. Now the sensitive powers are situated in corporeal organs, and therefore, so long as the latter is hindered, the action of the former is of necessity hindered also, and likewise, consequently, the use of reason. Now children are hindered in the use of these powers on account of the humidity of the brain, wherefore they have perfect use neither of these powers nor of reason. Therefore, in the state of innocence, children will not have had a perfect use of reason, which they would have enjoyed later on in life, yet they would have had a more perfect use than they have now as to matters regarding to the particular state, as explained above regarding the use of their limbs. Question 99. Article 1. Reply Objection 1. The corruptible body is lured upon the soul, because it hinders the use of reason even in those matters which belong to man at all ages. Reply Objection 2. Even other animals have not at best such a perfect use of their natural powers as they have later on. This is clear from the fact that birds teach the young to fly, and the like may be observed in other animals. Moreover, a special impediment exists in man from the humidity of the brain, as we have said above. Question 99. Article 1. End of Question 101. Recording by April Gonzalez in Cavita, Philippines. Question 102 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 102 of man's abode, which is paradise, in four articles. 
we next consider man's abode which is paradise under this head there are four points of inquiry one whether paradise is a corporeal place two whether it is a place apt for human habitation three for what purpose was man placed in paradise four whether he should have been created in paradise first article whether paradise is a corporeal place objection one it would seem that paradise is not a corporeal place for bede says that paradise reaches to the lunar circle but no earthly place answers that description both because it is contrary to the nature of the earth to be raised up so high and because beneath the moon is the region of fire which would consume the earth therefore paradise is not a corporeal place objection to further scripture mentions four rivers as rising in paradise genesis two ten but the rivers there mentioned have visible sources elsewhere as is clear from the philosopher meteorology one therefore paradise is not a corporeal place objection three further although men have explored the entire habitable world yet none have made mention of that place of paradise therefore apparently it is not a corporeal place objection four further the tree of life is described as growing in paradise but the tree of life is a spiritual thing for it is written of wisdom that she is a tree of life to them that lay hold on her proverbs three eighteen therefore paradise also is not a corporeal but spiritual place objection five further if paradise be a corporeal place the trees also of paradise must be corporeal but it seems they were not for corporeal trees were produced on the third day while the planting of the trees of paradise is recorded after the work of the six days therefore paradise was not a corporeal place on the contrary augustine says the literal meaning of genesis eight one three general opinions prevail about paradise some understand a place merely corporeal others a place merely spiritual while others whose opinion i confess pleases me hold that paradise was both corporeal and spiritual i answer that as augustine says the city of god thirteen twenty one nothing prevents us from holding within proper limits a spiritual paradise so long as we believe in the truth of the events narrated as having there occurred for whatever scripture tells us about paradise is set down as a matter of history and wherever scripture makes use of this method we must hold to the historical truth of the narrative as a foundation of whatever spiritual explanation we may offer and so paradise as isidore says entomologies fourteen three is a place situated in the east its name being the greek for garden it was fitting that it should be in the east for it is to be believed that it was situated in the most excellent part of the earth now the east is the right hand on the heavens as the philosopher explains on the heavens two two and the right hand is nobler than the left hence it was fitting that god should place the earthly paradise in the east reply objection one Bede's assertion is untrue if taken in its obvious sense it may however be explained to mean that paradise reaches to the moon not literally but figuratively because as isidore says entomologies fourteen three the atmosphere there is a continually even temperature and in this respect it is like the heavenly bodies which are devoid of opposing elements 
mention however is made of the moon rather than of other bodies because of all the heavenly bodies the moon is nearest to us and is moreover the most akin to the earth hence it is observed to be overshadowed by clouds so as to be almost obscured others say that paradise reached to the moon that is to the middle space of the air where rain and wind and the like arise because the moon is said to have influence on such changes but in this sense it would not be a fit place for human dwelling through being uneven in temperature and not attuned to the human temperament as is the lower atmosphere in the neighborhood of the earth reply objection two augustine says the literal meaning of genesis eight seven it is probable that man has no idea where paradise was and that the rivers whose sources are said to be known flowed for some distance underground and then sprang up elsewhere for who is not aware that such is the case with some other streams reply objection three the situation of paradise is shut off from the habitable world by mountains or seas or some torrid region which cannot be crossed and so people who have written about topography make no mention of it reply objection four the tree of life is a material tree and so called because its fruit was endowed with a life-preserving power as above stated question ninety seven article four yet it had a spiritual signification as the rock in the desert was of a material nature and yet signified christ in like manner the tree of knowledge of good and evil was a material tree so called in view of future events because after eating of it man was to learn by experience of the consequent punishment the difference between the good of obedience and the evil of rebellion it may also be said to signify spiritually the free will as some say reply objection five according to augustine the literal meaning of genesis five five eight three the plants were not actually produced on the third day but in their seminal virtues whereas after the work of six days the plants both of paradise and others were actually produced according to other holy writers we ought to say that all the plants were actually produced on the third day including the trees of paradise and what is said of the trees of paradise being planted after the work of the six days is to be understood they say by way of recapitulation whence our text reads the lord god had planted a paradise of pleasure from the beginning genesis 2 8 second article whether paradise was a place adapted to be the abode of man objection one it would seem that paradise was not a place adapted to be the abode of man for man and angels are similarly ordered to beatitude but the angels from the very beginning of their existence were made to dwell in the abode of the blessed that is the empyrean heaven therefore the place of man's habitation should have been there also objection two further if some definite place were required for man's abode this would be required on the part either of the soul or of the body if on the part of the soul the place would be in heaven which is adapted to the nature of the soul since the desire of heaven is implanted in all on the part of the body there was no need for any other place than the one provided for other animals therefore paradise was not at all adapted to be the abode of man objection three further a place which contains nothing is useless but after sin paradise was not occupied by man therefore if it were adapted as a dwelling place for man it seems that god made paradise to no purpose objection four further since man is of an even temperament a fitting place for him should be of even temperature 
but paradise was not of an even temperature for it is said to have been on the equator a situation of extreme heat since twice in the year the sun passes vertically over the heads of its inhabitants therefore paradise was not a fit dwelling place for man on the contrary damascene says on the orthodox faith two eleven paradise was a divinely ordered region and worthy of him who was made to god's image i answer that as above stated question ninety seven article one man was incorruptible and immortal not because his body had a disposition to incorruptibility but because in his soul there was a power preserving the body from corruption now the human body may be corrupted from within or from without from within the body is corrupted by the consumption of the humors and by old age as explained above question ninety seven article four and man was able to ward off such corruption by food among those things which corrupt the body from without the chief seems to be an atmosphere of unequal temperature and to such corruption a remedy is found in an atmosphere of equable nature in paradise both conditions were found because as damascene says on orthodox faith two eleven paradise was permeated with the all-pervading brightness of a temperate pure and exquisite atmosphere and decked with ever-flowering plants whence it is clear that paradise was most fit to be a dwelling place for man and in keeping with his original state of immortality reply objection one the empyrean heaven is the highest of corporeal places and is outside the region of change by the first of these two conditions it is a fitting abode for the angelic nature for as augustine says on the trinity too god rules corporeal creatures through spiritual creatures hence it is fitting that the spiritual nature should be established above the entire corporeal nature as presiding over it by the second condition it is a fitting abode for the state of beatitude which is endowed with the highest degree of stability thus the abode of beatitude was suited to the very nature of the angel therefore he was created there but it is not suited to man's nature since man is not set as a ruler over the entire corporeal creation it is a fitting abode for man in regard only to his beatitude wherefore he was not placed from the beginning in the empyrean heaven but was destined to be transferred thither in the state of his final beatitude reply objection to it is ridiculous to assert that any particular place is natural to the soul or to any spiritual substances though some particular place may have a certain fitness in regard to spiritual substances for the earthly paradise was a place adapted to man as regards both his body and his soul that is inasmuch as in his soul was the force which preserved the human body from corruption this could not be said of the other animals therefore as damascene says on the orthodox faith two eleven no irrational animal inhabited paradise although by a certain dispensation the animals were brought thither by god to adam and the serpent was able to trespass therein by the complicity of the devil reply objection three paradise did not become useless through being unoccupied by man after sin just as immortality was not conferred on man in vain though he was to lose it for thereby we learn god's kindness to man and what man lost by sin moreover some say that enoch and elias still dwell in that paradise reply objection four those who say that paradise was on the equinoctial line are of the opinion that such a situation is most temperate on account of the unvarying equality of day and night that it is never too cold there because the sun is never too far off and never too hot because although the sun passes over the heads of the inhabitants it does not remain long in that position however aristotle distinctly says 
meteorology to five that such a region is uninhabitable on account of the heat this seems to be more probable because even those regions where the sun does not pass vertically overhead are extremely hot on account of the mere proximity of the sun but whatever be the truth of the matter we must hold that paradise was situated in a most temperate situation whether on the equator or elsewhere third article whether man was placed in paradise to dress it and keep it objection one it would seem that man was not placed in paradise to dress and keep it for what was brought on him as a punishment of sin would not have existed in paradise in the state of innocence but the cultivation of the soil was a punishment of sin genesis three seventeen therefore man was not placed in paradise to dress and keep it objection two further there is no need of a keeper when there is no fear of trespass with violence but in paradise there was no fear of trespass with violence therefore there was no need for man to keep paradise objection three further if man was placed in paradise to dress and keep it man would apparently have been made for the sake of paradise and not contrariwise which seems to be false therefore man was not placed in paradise to dress and keep it on the contrary it is written in genesis two fifteen the lord god took man and placed in the paradise of pleasure to dress and keep it i answer that as augustine says the literal meaning of genesis eight ten these words in genesis may be understood in two ways first in the sense that god placed man in paradise that he might himself work in man and keep him by sanctifying him for if this work cease man at once relapses into darkness as the air grows dark when the light ceases to shine and by keeping man from all corruption and evil secondly that man might dress and keep paradise which dressing would not have involved labor as it did after sin but would have been pleasant on account of man's practical knowledge of the powers of nature nor would man have kept paradise against a trespasser but he would have striven to keep paradise for himself lest he should lose it by sin all of which was for man's good wherefore paradise was ordered to man's benefit and not conversely whence the replies to the objections are made clear fourth article whether man was created in paradise objection one it would seem that man was created in paradise for the angel was created in his dwelling place namely the empyrean heaven but before sin paradise was a fitting abode for man therefore it seems that man was created in paradise objection two further other animals remain in the place where they are produced as the fish in the water and the walking animals on the earth from which they were made now man would have remained in paradise after he was created question ninety seven article four therefore he was created in paradise objection three further woman was made in paradise but man is greater than woman therefore much more should man have been made in paradise on the contrary it is written genesis two fifteen god took man and placed him in paradise i answer that paradise was a fitting abode for man as regards the incorruptibility of the primitive state now this incorruptibility was man's not by nature but by a supernatural gift of god therefore that this might be attributed to god and not to human nature god made man outside of paradise and afterwards placed him there to live during the whole of his animal life and having attained to the spiritual life to be transferred thence to heaven reply objection one the empyrean heaven was a fitting abode for the angels as regards their nature and therefore they were created there in the same way i reply to the second objection for those places befit those animals in their nature 
Reply Objection 3. Woman was made in paradise, not by reason of her own dignity, but on account of the dignity of the principle from which her body was formed. For the same reason the children would have been born in paradise, where their parents were already. End of Question 102 End of Summa Theologica Pars Prima on Man by St. Thomas Aquinas Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province Question 103 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Divine Government. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Divine Government, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 103 of the Government of Things in General, in Eight Articles. Having considered the creation of things and their distinction, we now consider in the third place the government thereof, and 1. the government of things in general, 2. in particular, the effects of this government. Under the first head there are eight points of inquiry. 1. Whether the world is governed by someone. 2. What is the end of this government? 3. Whether the world is governed by one. 4. Of the effects of this government. 5 whether all things are subject to divine government. 6. Whether all things are immediately governed by God. 7. Whether the divine government is frustrated in anything. 8. Whether anything is contrary to the divine providence. First article. Whether the world is governed by anyone. Objection 1. It would seem that the world is not governed by anyone, for it belongs to those things to be governed which move or work for an end. But natural things, which make up the greater part of the world, do not move or work for an end, for they have no knowledge of their end. Therefore, the world is not governed. Objection 2. Further, those things are governed which are moved towards an object. But the world does not appear to be so directed, but has stability in itself. Therefore, it is not governed. Objection 3. Further, what is necessarily determined by its own nature to one particular thing does not require any external principle of government, but the principal parts of the world are by a certain necessity determined to something particular in their actions and movements. Therefore the world does not require to be governed. On the contrary, it is written, Wisdom 14.3, But thou, O Father, governest all things by thy providence. And Boethius says, in Consolation of Philosophy 3, Thou who governest this universe, by mandate eternal. I answer that certain ancient philosophers deny the government of the world, saying that all things happen by chance. But such an opinion can be refuted as impossible in two ways. First, by observation of things themselves. For we observe that in nature things happen always or nearly always for the best, which would not be the case unless some sort of providence directed nature toward good as an end, which is to govern. Wherefore, the unfailing order we observe in things is a sign of their being governed. For instance, if we enter a well-ordered house, we gather therefrom the intention of him that put it in order, as Tullius says on the nature of the gods too, quoting Aristotle's Cleanthes. Secondly, this is clear from a consideration of divine goodness, which, as we have said above, question 44, answer 4, question 65, answer 2, was the cause of the production of things in existence. 
For, as it belongs to the best to produce the best, it is not fitting that the supreme goodness of God should produce things without giving them their perfection. Now, a thing's ultimate perfection consists in the attainment of its end. Therefore, it belongs to the divine goodness, as it brought things into existence, so to lead them to their end. And this is to govern. Reply to Objection 1. A thing moves or operates for an end in two ways. First, in moving itself to the end, as man and other rational creatures, and such things have knowledge of their end, and of the means to the end. Secondly, a thing is said to move or operate for an end, as though moved or directed by another thereto, as an arrow directed to the target by the archer, who knows the end unknown to the arrow. Wherefore, as the movement of the arrow towards a definite end shows clearly that it is directed by someone with knowledge, so the unvarying course of natural things, which are without knowledge, shows clearly that the world is governed by some reason. Reply to Objection 2. In all created things there is a stable element, at least primary matter, and something belonging to movement, if under movement we include operation. And things need governing as to both, because even that which is stable, since it's created from nothing, would return to nothingness were it not sustained by a governing hand, as will be explained later in Question 4, Answer 1. Reply to Objection 3. The natural necessity inherent in those beings which are determined to a particular thing is a kind of impression from God, directing them to their end, as the necessity whereby an arrow is moved so as to fly towards a certain point is an impression from the archer and not from the arrow. But there is a difference, inasmuch as that which creatures receive from God is their nature, while that which natural things receive from man in addition to their nature is somewhat violent. Wherefore, as the violent necessity in the movement of the arrow shows the action of the archer, so the natural necessity of things shows the government of divine providence. Second article. Whether the end of the government of the world is something outside the world. Objection 1. It would seem that the end of the government of the world is not something existing outside the world. For the end of the government of a thing is that whereto the thing governed is brought. But that whereto a thing is brought is some good in the thing itself. Thus a sick man is brought back to health, which is something good in him. Therefore the end of government of things is some good not outside, but within the things themselves. Objection 2. Further, the philosopher says, Ethics 1.1, Some ends are an operation, some are a work. That is, produced by an operation. But nothing can be produced by the whole universe outside itself, and operation exists in the agent. Therefore, nothing extrinsic can be the end of the government of things. Objection 3. Further, the good of the multitude seems to consist in order, and peace, which is the tranquility of order, as Augustine says, City of God, 1913. But the world is composed of a multitude of things. Therefore, the end of the government of the world is the peaceful order of things in themselves. Therefore, the end of the government of the world is not an extrinsic good. On the contrary, it is written, Proverbs 16.4, The Lord hath made all things for himself. But God is outside the entire order of the universe. Therefore, the end of all things is something extrinsic to them. I answer that. As the end of a thing corresponds to its beginning, it is not possible to be ignorant of the end of things if we know their beginning. 
Therefore, since the beginning of all things is something outside the universe, namely God, it is clear from what has been expounded above, question 4, answers 1 and 2, that we must conclude that the end of all things is some extrinsic good. This can be proved by reason. For it is clear that good has the nature of an end. Wherefore, a particular end of anything consists in some particular good, while the universal end of all things is the universal good, which is good of itself by virtue of its essence, which is the very essence of goodness, whereas a particular good is good by participation. Now, it is manifest that in the whole created universe there is not a good which is not such by participation. Wherefore, that good which is the end of the whole universe must be a good outside the universe. Reply to Objection 1. We may acquire some good in many ways. First, as a form existing in us, such as health or knowledge. Secondly, as something done by us, as a builder attains his end by building a house. Thirdly, as something good possessed or acquired by us, as the buyer of a field attains his end when he enters into possession. Wherefore, nothing prevents something outside the universe being the good to which it is directed. Reply to Objection 2. The philosopher is speaking of the ends of various arts, for the end of some arts consists in the operation itself, as the end of a harpist is to play the harp, whereas the end of other arts consists in something produced, as the end of a builder is not the act of building, but the house he builds. Now it may happen that something extrinsic is the end not only as made, but also as possessed or acquired or even as represented, as if we were to say that Hercules is the end of the statue made to represent him. Therefore, we may say that some good outside the whole universe is the end of the government of the universe, as something possessed and represented. For each thing tends to a participation thereof, and to an assimilation thereto, as far as is possible. Reply to Objection 3. A good existing in the universe, namely the order of the universe, is an end thereof. This, however, is not its ultimate end, but is ordered to the extrinsic good as to the end, Thus the order in an army is ordered to the general, as stated in Metaphysics 12, Didascali 11.10. Third article, Whether the World is Governed by One. Objection 1. It would seem that the world is not governed by one, for we judge the cause by the effect. Now we see in the government of the universe that things are not moved and do not operate uniformly, but some contingently and some of necessity in variously different ways. Therefore, the world is not governed by one. Objection 2. Further, things which are governed by one do not act against each other, except by the incapacity or unskillfulness of the ruler, which cannot apply to God. But created things agree not together and act against each other, as is evident in the case of contraries. Therefore, the world is not governed by one. Objection 3. Further, in nature we always find what is the better, but it is better that two should be together than one, Ecclesiastes 4.9. Therefore, the world is not governed by one, but by many. On the contrary, we confess our belief in one God and one Lord, according to the words of the Apostle, 1 Corinthians 8.6. To us there is but one God, the Father, and one Lord and both of these pertain to government. For to the Lord belongs dominion over subjects, and the name of God is taken by providence, as stated above, question 13, answer 8. Therefore, the world is governed by one. I answer that 
we must of necessity say that the world is governed by one. For since the end of the government of the world is that which is essentially good, which is the greatest good, the government of the world must be the best kind of government. Now the best government is the government by one. The reason of this is that government is nothing but the directing of things governed to the end, which consists in some good. But unity belongs to the idea of goodness, as Boethius proves, Consolation of Philosophy 3.11, from this, that as all things desire good, so do they desire unity, without which they would cease to exist. For a thing so far exists as it is one. Whence we observe that things resist division, as far as they can, and the dissolution of a thing arises from defect therein. Therefore the intention of a ruler over a multitude is unity or peace. Now the proper cause of the unity is one. For it is clear that several cannot be the cause of unity or concord, except so far as they are united. Furthermore, what is one in itself is a more apt and a better cause of unity than several things united. Therefore a multitude is better governed by one than by several. From this it follows that the government of the world, being the best form of government, must be by one. This is expressed by the philosopher, Metaphysics 12, Didascali 11.10. Things refuse to be ill-governed, and multiplicity of authorities is a bad thing. Therefore, there should be one ruler. Reply to Objection 1. Movement is the act of a thing moved, caused by the mover. Wherefore, dissimilarity of movements is caused by a diversity of things moved, which diversity is essential to the perfection of the universe. Question 47, answers 1 and 2. Question 48, answer 2. And not by a diversity of governors. Reply to Objection 2. Although contraries do not agree with each other in their proximate ends, nevertheless they agree in the ultimate end, so far as they are included in the one order of the universe. Reply to Objection 3. If we consider individual goods, then two are better than one. But if we consider the essential good, then no addition is possible. Fourth article. Whether the effect of government is one or many. Objection 1. It would seem that there is but one effect of the government of the world and not many. For the effect of government is that which is caused in the things governed. This is one, namely the good which consists in order, as may be seen in the example of an army. Therefore the government of the world has but one effect. Objection 2. Further, from one there naturally proceeds but one. But the world is governed by one as we have proved, answer 3. Therefore also the effect of this government is but one. Objection 3. Further, if the effect of government is not one by reason of the unity of the governor, it must be many by reason of the many things governed but these are too numerous to be counted. Therefore, we cannot assign any definite number to the effects of government. On the contrary, Dionysius says, Divine Names 12, God contains all and fills all by his providence and perfect goodness. But government belongs to providence. Therefore, there are certain definite effects of the divine government. I answer that the effect of any action may be judged from its end, because it is by action that the attainment of the end is effected. Now the end of the government of the world is the essential good, to the participation and similarity of which all things tend. Consequently, the effect of the government of the world may be taken in three ways. First, on the part of the end itself, and in this way there is but one effect that is assimilation to the supreme good, 
Secondly, the effect of the government of the world may be considered on the part of those things by means of which the creature is made like to God. Thus there are, in general, two effects of the government. For the creature is assimilated to God in two things. First, with regard to this, that God is good. And so the creature becomes like him by being good. And secondly, with regard to this, that God is the cause of goodness in others. And so the creature becomes like God by moving others to be good. Wherefore, there are two effects of government, the preservation of things in their goodness, and the moving of things to good. Thirdly, we may consider in the individual the effects of the government of the world, and in this way they are without number. Reply to Objection 1. The order of the universe includes both the preservation of things created by God and their movement. As regards these two things, we find order among them, inasmuch as one is better than another, and one is moved by another. From what has been said above, we can gather the replies to the other two objections. Fifth article. Whether all things are subject to the divine government. Objection 1. It would seem that not all things are subject to the divine government. For it is written, Ecclesiastes 9.11, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the learned, nor favor to the skillful, but time and chance in all. But things subject to the divine government are not ruled by chance. Therefore, those things which are under the sun are not subject to the divine government. Objection 2. Further, the Apostle says, 1 Corinthians 9, 9, God hath no care for oxen. But he that governs has care for the things he governs. Therefore, all things are not subject to the divine government. Objection 3. Further, what can govern itself needs not be governed by another. But the rational creature can govern itself, since it is master of its own act and acts of itself, and is not made to act by another, which seems proper to things which are governed. Therefore, all things are not subject to the divine government. On the contrary, Augustine says, City of God, 511, Not only heaven and earth, not only man and angel, even the bowels of the lowest animal, even the wing of the bird, the flower of the plant, the leaf of the tree, hath God endowed with every fitting detail of their nature. Therefore, all things are subject to his government. I answer that, for the same reason is God the ruler of things, as he is their cause, because the same gives existence as gives perfection, and this belongs to government. Now God is the cause not indeed only of some particular kind of being, but of the whole universal being, as proved above, question 44, answers 1 and 2. Wherefore, as there can be nothing which is not created by God, so there can be nothing which is not subject to his government. This can also be proved from the nature of the end of government. For a man's government extends over all those things which come under the end of his government. Now the end of the divine government is the divine goodness, as we've shown. Answer 2. Wherefore, as there can be nothing that is not ordered to the divine goodness as its end, as is clear from what we've said above, question 44, answer 4, question 65, answer 2, so it is impossible for anything to escape from the divine government. Foolish, therefore, was the opinion of those who said that the corruptible lower world or individual things or that even human affairs were not subject to the divine government. These are represented as saying, 
God hath abandoned the earth. Ezekiel 9.9 Reply to Objection 1. These things are said to be under the sun, which are generated and corrupted according to the sun's movement. In all such things we find chance. Not that everything is casual which occurs in such things, but that in each one there is an element of chance. And the very fact that an element of chance is found in those things proves that they are subject to government of some kind. For unless corruptible things were governed by a higher being, they would tend to nothing definite, especially those which possess no kind of knowledge. So nothing would happen unintentionally, which constitutes the nature of chance. Wherefore, to show how things happen by chance, and yet according to the ordering of a higher cause, he does not say absolutely that he observes chance in all things, but time and chance, that is to say, that defects may be found in these things according to some order of time. Reply to Objection 2. Government implies a certain change effected by the governor in the things governed. Now every movement is the act of a movable thing, caused by the moving principle, as is laid down, Physics 3.3. And every act is proportionate to that of which it is an act. Consequently, various movable things must be moved variously, even as regards movement by one and the same mover. Thus, by the one art of the divine governor, various things are variously governed according to their variety. Some, according to their nature, act of themselves, having dominion over their actions. And these are governed by God, not only in this, that they are moved by God himself, who works in them interiorly, but also in this, that they are induced by him to do good and to fly from evil, by precepts and prohibitions, rewards and punishments. But irrational creatures which do not act, but are acted upon, are not thus governed by God. Hence, when the Apostle says that God hath no care for oxen, he does not wholly withdraw them from the, the divine government, but only as regards the way in which rational creatures are governed. Reply to Objection 3. The rational creature governs itself by its intellect and will, both of which require to be governed and perfected by the divine intellect and will. Therefore, above the government whereby the rational creature governs itself as master of its own act, it requires to be governed by God. Sixth article, whether all things are immediately governed by God. Objection 1. It would seem that all things are governed by God immediately. For Gregory of Nyssa, Nemesius on human nature, reproves the opinion of Plato, who divides providence into three parts. The first he ascribes to the supreme God, who watches over heavenly things and all universals. The second providence he attributes to the secondary deities, who go the round of the heavens to watch over generation and corruption. While the third, he ascribes a third providence to certain spirits who are guardians on earth of human actions. Therefore, it seems that all things are immediately governed by God. Objection 2. Further, it's better that a thing be done by one, if possible, than by many, as the philosopher says, Physics 8.6. But God can by himself govern all things without any intermediary cause. Therefore, it seems that he governs all things immediately. Objection 3. Further, in God nothing is defective or imperfect. But it seems to be imperfect in a ruler to govern by means of others. Thus an earthly king, by reason of his not being able to do everything himself, and because he cannot be everywhere at the same time, requires to govern by means of ministers. Therefore God governs all things immediately. On the contrary, Augustine says, on the Trinity 3.4, as the lower and grosser bodies are ruled in a certain orderly way by bodies of greater subtlety and power, 
so all bodies are ruled by the rational spirit of life, and the sinful and unfaithful spirit is ruled by the good and just spirit of life, and this spirit by God himself. I answer that in government there are two things to be considered, the design of government, which is providence itself, and the execution of the design. As to the design of government, God governs all things immediately, whereas in its execution, he governs some things by means of others. The reason of this is that as God is the very essence of goodness, so everything must be attributed to God in its highest degree of goodness. Now, the highest degree of goodness in any practical order, design, or knowledge, and such as the design of the government, consists in knowing the individuals acted upon, as the best physician is not the one who can only give his attention to general principles, but who can consider the least details, and so on and other things. Therefore, we must say that God has the design of the government in all things, even of the very least. But since things which are governed should be brought to perfection by government, this government will be so much the better in the degree the things governed are brought to perfection. Now, it is a greater perfection for a thing to be good in itself and also the cause of goodness in others than only to be good in itself. Therefore, God so governs things that he makes some of them to be causes of others in government, as a master who not only imparts knowledge to his pupils, but gives also the faculty of teaching others. Reply to Objection 1. Plato's opinion is to be rejected, because he held that God did not govern all things immediately, even in the design of government. This is clear from the fact that he divided providence, which is the design of government, into three parts. Reply to Objection 2. If God governed alone, things would be deprived of the perfection of causality. Wherefore, all that is affected by many would not be accomplished by one. Reply to Objection 3. That an earthly king should have ministers to execute his laws is a sign not only of his being imperfect, but also of his dignity because by the ordering of ministers, the kingly power is brought into greater evidence. Seventh article. Whether anything can happen outside the order of divine government. Objection 1. It would seem possible that something may occur outside the order of the divine government. For Boethius says, on the Consolation of Philosophy 3, that God disposes all for good. Therefore, if nothing happens outside the order of the divine government, it would follow that no evil exists. Objection 2. Further, nothing that is in accordance with the preordination of a ruler occurs by chance. Therefore, if nothing occurs outside the order of the divine government, it follows that there is nothing fortuitous and casual. Objection 3. Further, the order of divine providence is certain and unchangeable, because it is in accordance with the eternal design. Therefore, if nothing happens outside the order of the divine government, it follows that all things happen by necessity, and nothing is contingent, which is false. Therefore, it is possible for something to occur outside the order of the divine government. On the contrary, it is written, Esther 13.9, O Lord, Lord, Almighty King, all things are in thy power, and there is none that can resist thy will. I answer that it is possible for an effect to result outside the order of some particular cause, but not outside the order of the universal cause. The reason of this is that no effect results outside the order of a particular cause except through some other impeding cause, 
which other cause must itself be reduced to the first universal cause, as indigestion may occur outside the order of the nutritive power by some such impediment as the coarseness of the food, which again is to be ascribed to some other cause, and so on till we come to the first universal cause. Therefore, as God is the first universal cause, not of one genus only, but of all being in general, it is impossible for anything to occur outside the order of the divine government. But from the very fact that from one point of view something seems to evade the order of divine providence considered in regard to one particular cause, it must necessarily come back to that order as regards some other cause. Reply to Objection 1. There is nothing wholly evil in the world, for evil is ever founded on good, as shown above. Question 48, answer 3. Therefore, something is said to be evil through its escaping from the order of some particular good. If it wholly escaped from the order of the divine government, it would wholly cease to exist. Reply to Objection 2. Things are said to be fortuitous as regards some particular cause from the order of which they escape, but as to the order of divine providence, nothing in the world happens by chance, as Augustine declares. 83 different questions. Question 24. Reply to Objection 3. Certain effects are said to be contingent as compared to their proximate causes, which may fail in their effects, and not as though anything could happen entirely outside the order of divine government. The very fact that something occurs outside the order of some proximate cause is owing to some other cause, itself subject to the divine government. Eighth Article. Whether anything can resist the order of the divine government. Objection 1. It would seem possible that some resistance can be made to the order of the divine government. For it is written, Isaiah 3.8, Their tongue and their devices are against the Lord. Objection 2. Further, a king does not justly punish those who do not rebel against his commands. Therefore, if no one rebelled against God's commands, no one would be justly punished by God. Objection 3. Further, everything is subject to the order of the divine government. But some things oppose others. Therefore, some things rebel against the order of the divine government. On the contrary, Boethius says, Consolation of Philosophy 3, there is nothing that can desire or is able to resist this sovereign good. It is this sovereign good, therefore, that ruleth all mightily and ordereth all sweetly, as is said, Wisdom 8 of Divine Wisdom. I answer that we may consider the order of divine providence in two ways. In general, inasmuch as it proceeds from the governing cause of all, and in particular, inasmuch as it proceeds from some particular cause which executes the order of the divine government. Considered in the first way, nothing can resist the order of the divine government. This can be proved in two ways. Firstly, from the fact that the order of the divine government is wholly directed to good, and everything by its own operation and effort tends to good only. For no one acts intending evil, as Dionysius says, divine names for. Secondly, from the fact that, as we've said above, answer 1, add 3, answer 5, add 2, every inclination of anything, whether natural or voluntary, is nothing but a kind of impression from the first mover, as the inclination of the arrow toward a fixed point is nothing but an impulse received from the archer. Wherefore, every agent, whether natural or free, attains to its divinely appointed end, as though of its own accord. For this reason God is said to order all things sweetly. Reply to Objection 1. Some are said to think or speak or act against God, 
not that they entirely resist the order of the divine government, for even the sinner intends the attainment of a certain good, but because they resist some particular good, which belongs to their nature or state. Therefore, they are justly punished by God. Reply to Objection 2 is clear from the above. In Reply to Objection 3, from the fact that one thing opposes another, it follows that some one thing can resist the order of a particular cause, but not that order which depends on the universal cause of all things. End of question 103. Question 104 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Divine Government. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Divine Government, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 104. The Special Effects of the Divine Government. In Four Articles. We next consider the effects of the divine government in particular, concerning which four points of inquiry arise. 1. Whether creatures need to be kept in existence by God. 2. Whether they are immediately preserved by God. 3. Whether God can reduce anything to nothingness. 4. Whether anything is reduced to nothingness. First article. Whether creatures need to be kept in being by God. Objection 1. It would seem that creatures do not need to be kept in being by God, for what cannot not be does not need to be kept in being, just as that which cannot depart does not need to be kept from departing. But some creatures by their very nature cannot not be. Therefore not all creatures need to be kept in being by God. The middle proposition is proved thus. That which is included in the nature of a thing is necessarily in that thing, and its contrary cannot be in it. Thus a multiple of two must necessarily be even and cannot possibly be an odd number. Now form brings being with itself, because everything is actually in being so far as it has form. But some creatures are subsistent forms, as we've said of the angels, question 50, answers 2 and 5, and thus to be is in them of themselves. The same reasoning applies to those creatures whose matter is in potentiality to one form only, as above explained of heavenly bodies. Question 66, answer 2. Therefore such creatures as these have in their nature to be necessarily, and cannot not be. For there can be no potentiality to not being, either in the form which has being of itself, or in matter existing under a form which it cannot lose, since it is not in potentiality to any other form. Objection 2. Further, God is more powerful than any created agent. But a created agent, even after ceasing to act, can cause its effect to be preserved in being. Thus the house continues to stand after the builder has ceased to build, and water remains hot for some time after the fire has ceased to heat. Much more, therefore, can God cause his creature to be kept in being, after he has ceased to create it. Objection 3. Further, nothing violent can occur except there be some active cause thereof. But tendency to not being is unnatural and violent to any creature since all creatures naturally desire to be. Therefore no creature can tend to not being, except through some active cause of corruption. Now there are creatures of such a nature that nothing can cause them to corrupt, such are spiritual substances and heavenly bodies. 
Therefore, such creatures cannot tend to not being, even if God were to withdraw his action. Objection 4. Further, if God keeps creatures in being, this is done by some action. Now, every action of an agent, if that action be efficacious, produces something in the effect. Therefore, the preserving power of God must produce something in the creature. But this is not so, because this action does not give being to the creature, since being is not given to that which already is. Nor does it add anything new to the creature, because either God would not keep the creature in being continually, or he would be continually adding something new to the creature, either of which is unreasonable. Therefore, creatures are not kept in being by God. On the contrary, it is written, Hebrews 1.3, Upholding all things by the word of his power. I answer that both reason and faith bind us to say that creatures are kept in being by God. To make this clear, we must consider that a thing is preserved by another in two ways. First, indirectly and accidentally. Thus, a person is said to preserve anything by removing the cause of its corruption, as a man may be said to preserve a child whom he guards from falling into the fire. In this way, God preserves some things, but not all, for there are some things of such a nature that nothing can corrupt them, so that it is not necessary to keep them from corruption. Secondly, a thing is said to preserve another per se and directly, namely, when what is preserved depends on the preserver in such a way that it cannot exist without it. In this manner, all creatures need to be preserved by God, for the being of every creature depends on God, so that not for a moment could it subsist, but would fall into nothingness were it not kept in being by the operation of the divine power, as Gregory says in Moral Poems 16. This is made clear as follows. Every effect depends on its cause, so far as it is its cause, but we must observe that an agent may be the cause of the becoming of its effect, but not directly of its being. This may be seen both in artificial and in natural beings, for the builder causes the house in its becoming, but he is not the direct cause of its being, for it is clear that the being of the house is a result of its form, which consists in the putting together and arrangement of the materials, and results from the natural qualities of certain things. Thus a cook dresses the food by applying the natural activity of fire, thus a builder constructs a house by making use of cement, stones, and wood which are able to be put together in a certain order and to preserve it. Therefore the being of a house depends on the nature of these materials, just as its becoming depends on the action of the builder. The same principle applies to natural things. For if an agent is not the cause of a form as such, neither will it be directly the cause of being which results from that form, but it will be the cause of the effect in its becoming only. Now, it is clear that of two things in the same species, one cannot directly cause the other's form as such, since it would then be the cause of its own form, which is essentially the same as the form of the other. But it can be the cause of this form for as much as it is in matter. In other words, it may be the cause that this matter receives this form. And this is to be the cause of becoming, as when man begets man and fire causes fire. Thus, whenever a natural effect is such that it has an aptitude to receive from its active cause an impression specifically the same as in that active cause, then the becoming of the effect, but not its being, depends on the agent. Sometimes, however, the effect has not this aptitude to receive the impression of its cause in the same way as it exists in the agent, as may be seen clearly in all agents which do not produce an effect of the same species as themselves. 
Thus the heavenly bodies cause the generation of inferior bodies which differ from them in species. Such an agent can be the cause of a form as such, and not merely as existing in this matter. Consequently, it is not merely the cause of becoming, but also the cause of being. Therefore, as the becoming of a thing cannot continue when that action of the agent ceases which causes the becoming of the effect, so neither can the being of a thing continue after that action of the agent has ceased, which is the cause of the effect not only in becoming, but also in being. This is why hot water retains heat after the cessation of the fire's action, while on the contrary the air does not continue to be lit up even for a moment when the sun ceases to act upon it, because water is a matter susceptive of the fire's heat in the same way as it exists in the fire. Wherefore, if it were to be reduced to the perfect form of fire, it would retain that form always, whereas if it has the form of fire imperfectly and inchoately, the heat will remain for a time only by reason of the imperfect participation of the principle of heat. On the other hand, air is not of such a nature as to receive the light in the same way it is as it exists in the sun, which is the principle of light. Therefore, since it has not root in the air, the light ceases with the action of the sun. Now every creature may be compared to God, as the air is to the sun which enlightens it. For as the sun possesses light by its nature, and as the air is enlightened by sharing the sun's nature, so God alone is being in virtue of his own essence, since his essence is his existence. Whereas every creature has being by participation, so that its essence is not its existence. Therefore, as Augustine says, the literal meaning of Genesis 4.12, If the ruling power of God were withdrawn from his creatures, their nature would at once cease, and all nature would collapse. In the same work, in the literal meaning of Genesis 8.12, he says, As the air becomes light by the presence of the sun, so is man enlightened by the presence of God, and in his absence returns at once to darkness. Reply to Objection 1. Being naturally results from the form of a creature, given the influence of the divine action, just as light results from the diaphanous nature of the air, given the action of the sun. Wherefore, the potentiality to not being in spiritual creatures and heavenly bodies is rather something in God, who can withdraw his influence, than in the form or matter of those creatures. Reply to Objection 2. God cannot grant to a creature to be preserved in being after the cessation of the divine influence, as neither can he make it not to have received its being from himself. For the creature needs to be preserved by God in so far as the being of an effect depends on the cause of its being, so that there is no comparison with an agent that is not the cause of being, but only of becoming. Reply to Objection 3. This argument holds in regard to that preservation which consists in the removal of corruption, but all creatures do not need to be preserved thus, as stated above. Reply to Objection 4. The preservation of things by God is a continuation of that action whereby He gives existence, which action is without either motion or time, so also the preservation of light in the air is by the continual influence of the sun. Second article. Whether God preserves every creature immediately. Objection 1. It would seem that God preserves every creature immediately, for God creates and preserves things by the same action as above stated, answer 1 at 4. But God created all things immediately, therefore he preserves all things immediately. Objection 2. Further, a thing is nearer to itself than to another, 
But it cannot be given to a creature to preserve itself, much less, therefore, can it be given to a creature to preserve another. Therefore, God preserves all things without any intermediate cause preserving them. Objection 3. Further, an effect is kept in being by the cause, not only of its becoming, but also of its being. But all created causes do not seem to cause their effects except in their becoming, for they cause only by moving, as above stated. Question 45, answer 3. Therefore, they do not cause so as to keep their effects in being. On the contrary, a thing is kept in being by that which gives it being. But God gives being by means of certain intermediate causes. Therefore, he also keeps things in being by means of certain causes. I answer that, as stated above, answer 1, a thing keeps another in being in two ways. First, indirectly and accidentally, by removing or hindering the action of a corrupting cause. Secondly, directly and per se, by the fact that on it depends the other's being, as the being of the effect depends on the cause. And in both ways, a created thing keeps another in being. For it is clear that even in corporeal beings, there are many causes which hinder the action of corrupting agents, and for that reason are called preservatives, just as salt preserves meat from putrefaction, and in like manner with many other things. It happens also that an effect depends on a creature as to its being. For when we have a series of causes depending on one another, it necessarily follows that while the effect depends first and principally on the first cause, it also depends in a secondary way on all the middle causes. Therefore, the first cause is the principal cause of the preservation of the effect, which is to be referred to the middle causes in a secondary way, and all the more so as the middle cause is higher and nearer to the first cause. For this reason, even in things corporeal, the preservation and continuation of things is ascribed to the higher causes. Thus, the philosopher says in Metaphysics 12, Didascalis 11, 6, that the first, namely the diurnal movement, is the cause of the continuation of things generated, whereas the second movement, which is from the zodiac, is the cause of diversity owing to generation and corruption. In like manner, astrologers ascribe to Saturn, the highest of the planets, those things which are permanent and fixed. So we conclude that God keeps certain things in being by means of certain causes. Reply to Objection 1. God created all things immediately. But in the creation itself, he established an order among things, so that some depend on others, by which they are preserved in being, though he remains the principal cause of their preservation. Reply to Objection 2. Since an effect is preserved by its proper cause on which it depends, just as no effect can be its own cause but can only produce another effect, so no effect can be endowed with the power of self-preservation, but only with the power of preserving another. Reply to Objection 3. No created nature can be the cause of another, as regards the latter acquiring a new form or disposition, except by virtue of some change, for the created nature acts always on something presupposed. But after causing the form or disposition in the effect, without any fresh change in the effect, the cause preserves that form or disposition, as in the air when it is lit up anew, we must allow some change to have taken place, while the preservation of the light is without any further change in the air, Due to the presence of the source of light. Third article. Whether God can annihilate anything. Objection 1. It would seem that God cannot annihilate anything. For Augustine says, questions 83, 21, that God is not the cause of anything tending to non-existence. 
but he would be such a cause if he were to annihilate anything. Therefore, he cannot annihilate anything. Objection 2. Further, by his goodness, God is the cause why things exist, since, as Augustine says in On Christian Teaching 132, because God is good, we exist. But God cannot cease to be good. Therefore, he cannot cause things to cease to exist, which would be the case were he to annihilate anything. Objection 3. Further, if God were to annihilate anything, it would be by his action. But this cannot be, because the term of every action is existence. Hence, even the action of a corrupting cause has its term in something generated. For when one thing is generated, another undergoes corruption. Therefore, God cannot annihilate anything. On the contrary, it is written in Jeremiah 10.24, Correct me, O Lord, but yet with judgment, and not in thy fury, lest thou bring me to nothing. I answer that some have held that God, in giving existence to creatures, acted from a natural necessity. Were this true, God could not annihilate anything, since his nature cannot change. But, as we've said above, question 19, answer 4, such an opinion is entirely false, and absolutely contrary to the Catholic faith, which confesses that God created things of his own free will, according to Psalm 134.6. Whatever the Lord pleased, he hath done. Therefore, that God gives existence to a creature depends on his will, nor does he preserve things in existence otherwise than by continually pouring out existence into them, as we've said. Therefore, just as before things existed, God was free not to give them existence, and not to make them. So after they are made, he is free not to continue their existence, and thus they would cease to exist, and this would be to annihilate them. Reply to Objection 1. Non-existence has no direct cause, for nothing is a cause except inasmuch as it has existence, and a being essentially as such is a cause of something existing. Therefore, God cannot cause a thing to tend to non-existence, whereas a creature has this tendency of itself, since it is produced from nothing. But indirectly, God can be the cause of things being reduced to non-existence by withdrawing his action therefrom. Reply to Objection 2. God's goodness is the cause of things, not as though by natural necessity, because the divine goodness does not depend on creatures, but by his free will. Wherefore, as without prejudice to his goodness, he might not have produced things into existence, so, without prejudice to his goodness, he might not preserve things in existence. Reply to Objection 3. If God were to annihilate anything, this would not imply an action on God's part, but a mere cessation of his action. Fourth article. Whether anything is annihilated. Objection 1. It would seem that something is annihilated, for the end corresponds to the beginning. But in the beginning there was nothing but God, Therefore all things must tend to this end, that there shall be nothing but God. Therefore creatures will be reduced to nothing. Objection 2. Further, every creature has a finite power, but no finite power extends to the infinite. Wherefore the philosopher proves, in Physics 8.10, that a finite power cannot move in infinite time. Therefore a creature cannot last for an infinite duration, and so at some time it will be reduced to nothing. Objection 3. Further, forms and accidents have no matter as part of themselves, but at some time they cease to exist. Therefore, they are reduced to nothing. On the contrary, it is written, Ecclesiastes 
I have learned that all the works that God hath made continue forever. I answer that some of those things which God does in creatures occur in accordance with the natural course of things. Others happen miraculously and not in accordance with the natural order, as will be explained in question 105, answer 6. Now whatever God wills to do according to the natural order of things may be observed from their nature. But those things which occur miraculously are ordered for the manifestation of grace, according to the Apostle, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit unto profit, 1 Corinthians 12.7. And subsequently he mentions, among others, the working of miracles. Now, the nature of creatures shows that none of them is annihilated. For either they are immaterial and therefore have no potentiality to non-existence, or they are material and then they continue to exist at least in matter which is incorruptible, since it is the subject of generation and corruption. Moreover, the annihilation of things does not pertain to the manifestation of grace, since rather the power and goodness of God are manifested by the preservation of things in existence. Wherefore, we must conclude by denying absolutely that anything at all will be annihilated. Reply to Objection 1. That things are brought into existence from a state of non-existence clearly shows the power of Him who made them, but that they should be reduced to nothing would hinder that manifestation, since the power of God is conspicuously shown in His preserving all things in existence, according to the Apostle, upholding all things by the word of His power. Hebrews 1.3 Reply to Objection 2. A creature's potentiality to existence is merely receptive. The active power belongs to God Himself, from whom existence is derived. Wherefore, the infinite duration of things is a consequence of the infinity of the divine power. To some things, however, is given a determinate power of duration for a certain time, so far as they may be hindered by some contrary agent from receiving the influx of existence which comes from him whom finite power cannot resist, for an infinite, but only for a fixed time. So things which have no contrary, although they have a finite power, continue to exist forever. Reply to Objection 3. Forms and accidents are not complete beings, since they do not subsist but each one of them is something of a being, for it is called a being because something is by it. Yet so far as their mode of existence is concerned, they are not entirely reduced to nothingness, not that any part of them survives, but that they remain in the potentiality of the matter or of the subject. End of question 104.